1 John chapter 2. We're going to begin this morning in verse 1. The Apostle John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that You would speak to us through Your Spirit. And through the word that the Apostle John wrote so many years ago, that is alive and active, able to penetrate our own hearts. Father, I pray that we would all have ears to hear what it is that you're going to say to us. Father, I pray that I would be able to speak this message with clarity. That I would be able to convey the deep joy that you've placed in my heart this week as a result of this text. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. You may be seated. When do you think a warning label goes wrong? I mean, warning labels are put on all kinds of products and they're they're given uh, to help certain kinds of things so, so that they don't happen, but... As you begin to think about warning labels themselves, sometimes you begin to think, I don't know that all of those warning labels are really necessary. Warning labels help us, but sometimes they reveal to us that there are certain people living among us who need that kind of help. And just a couple of examples that that came to my attention. Labels like this. A Vidal Sassoon hair dryer. This is the warning on it. Warning, do not use while sleeping. Okay. An iPod shuffle. Warning, do not eat iPod shuffle. Somebody had to have done that for that to be there. Those auto shade windshield visors, the ones that are silver that you see all around, says this, warning, do not drive with sunshade in place. Remove from windshield before you start the ignition. Okay. A Rowenta iron. Warning. Do not direct steam at people. That's a form of torture. Do not direct steam at people or animals. Or iron clothes while they're being worn. Who would think to do that? Black cat firecrackers. Warning. Flammable. No joke. Do not put in your mouth. (laughs) Okay. 
a Dremel electrical rotary tool. Warning, this product is not intended for use as a dental drill in human or veterinarian medical applications. There's some sick people out there, friends. My personal favorite is this one. Child-sized Superman costume. Warning, wearing of this garment does not enable you to fly. That's not necessarily true at my house. Now, the, the purpose of a good warning label is to steer you away from doing something stupid, right? It's to, to push you back and say, no, don't, don't put that in your mouth. No, don't pour that over your head. No, don't iron clothes on someone who's wearing those clothes. It's, it's to steer us away from doing something stupid. But, but what warning labels also, many times they, they have how to fix the stupid thing that you've done with the product, right? So you've got another sentence or two that says something to the effect of, after you've done this, go wash your hands or go wash your eyes out or do something. But it tells us a solution. So you have the warning, then you have the solution, how you can fix the problem. Now, in the passage that we read here just a second ago, John gives the warning because of what he said in chapter 1. In chapter 1 and verse 10, he said, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, that verse could easily turn us into lazy Christians. I mean, I hear it all the time, and I'm sure that you do too. People, we we say, well, everybody messes up. Everybody sins. Everybody does stupid things. I'm no different than everybody else. Everybody messes up. Verse 9 in chapter 1 can become that get-out-of-jail-free card for our spiritual monopoly. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And both of these verses are true, aren't they? The both of them are true. We are sinful people. That's what we are. We are sinful people, but God really does forgive us when we confess our sins to Him and repent. But what John is saying is... These verses don't give us a license to sin. They don't enable us to continue on in sin. Our our lives shouldn't be characterized by sinful living. Instead, we should be characterized by commandment keeping and by holiness. Commandment keeping, the one that's in view here today is the greatest commandment. Loving God, loving other people. So a life that is changed, life that is changed, that's the evidence that you're looking for, that you know God. So he gives us the warning here in this chapter. Don't keep sinning. Don't keep sinning. But like a good warning label, John, he gives us the warning, then he gives us the solution. So who do you turn to when you sin? Where do you go? Who do you turn to? Who can help? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? Jesus. Jesus is the one. So the first evidence that you know that you know God is whether or not you're willing to trust in Jesus to bear the weight of your sin. Trust Jesus to bear the weight of your sin. And that's what we see there in verse 1. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
John is not under any illusions with his audience. He's not a perfectionist. He's not someone who thinks that eventually in this life you will achieve perfection. You will get to your, the point in your life where you will no longer sin anymore. John doesn't think that. He knows people. He knows the people who he's writing to. He knows himself. We're not ever going to get to the point where we are fully without sin in this life. That only comes when Christ returns. We all sin. But the reason that he's writing, he says, is so that we would not sin. So that we would not continue to sin. He's encouraging us not to continue in sin. And we should not be so foolish as to say that we are incapable of sinning. That's what he said before. It's not even impossible for me to sin. We shouldn't be foolish in thinking that's true. We should also not be so foolish to think that we would ever get to a point where we don't sin. So who do we turn to when we sin? And this is why I said a few minutes ago, this has been such an encouraging passage to me. And at first glance, when you look at this passage, and even as we read through it, you might have been going, okay, here we go. But it was such an encouraging passage to me because it revealed to me my own problems, but it also revealed so clearly the one who was able to take care of those problems. To look at Jesus. It's easy to listen to the lie that Cameron told us about last week. The lie that says we don't really do anything that's that bad. You know, sin, it's not that big of an issue for us. God doesn't really care that much about it. It's easy to, to think about that lie, but I would, I would say that most of us probably struggle with the opposite end of that. We know that we sin. We know that we sin. We're always, it seems like, messing up, doing even the same stupid things day after day, despite the warnings. And there are too many Christians that are beaten down by their own sin. Maybe you're one of them today. Do you want your life to be characterized by holiness? That's what you want. You want your life to be characterized by obedience and by love and by doing the right thing. But you constantly find yourself falling prey to angry fits and bitterness and dirty movies and buying and buying and buying and never being satisfied and all kinds of other things. You know you don't want to do that. You know those things aren't right, but who do you turn to? Well, John tells us who to turn to. What does he say in verse 1? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Trying to carry our own sin is so heavy. It's It's like trying to run a marathon with concrete blocks on your feet. You can't do it. It's so heavy, it pulls you down, it weighs you down from trying to live the Christian life the way that Christ has instructed you to do so. And as Christians, sometimes we forget that the burden of our sin is no longer ours to carry. It's no longer ours to carry. We're trying to walk to the celestial city, as John Bunyan puts it, and we're trying to keep that massive load on our back, and we're forgetting that we ought to just drop it there at the cross and head toward the celestial city. The burden is not ours to bear. There's someone else who can bear that burden. We have to trust Jesus to bear the burden of our sin. Why? 
John tells us exactly why. First of all, Jesus never leaves you. Jesus never leaves you. John says that Jesus is our advocate. He's he's the one who stands before the judge. He's the one that argues your case. He's the one that has come alongside you and is walking with you in your most desperate of hours. Jesus walks with you. He guides you and he never leaves you. He's your advocate. But he also lives perfectly. He's the righteous one. You can trust him because he's perfect. John calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's kind of like when I was a kid, rarely did I watch WWF wrestling. But if you would watch WWF wrestling, you would you would hear, you know, this was this this was the time of Hulk Hogan and, and other people. So. This massive man would come up into the ring and he would step into the ring and you'd hear the announcer and he would say, Andre the Giant! Something like that. Now, Andre the Giant, he could have been called various things. He, he was a Frenchman. Nobody said Andre the Frenchman. He was a Frenchman who also owned a a very nice French restaurant in Canada, but nobody said that he was the restaurant owner, Andre. He also was a man who, crazy as it might sound, was able to drink 117 beers in one sitting. But that was still not the thing that characterized him. What was it? He was 7 foot 4 inches tall. That's what characterized him. So when they looked at him, they said, oh, this guy's got a lot of other things going on, but he is Andre the Giant. Well, that's exactly what what John is doing. What is it that characterizes Jesus so much? There's a lot of things that we can look at that show who Jesus is. But he says, Jesus Christ, what? The righteous. He is the one that is absolutely perfect. He is characterized by his perfection. And it's because of that perfection that he can take your place and die on the cross for your sins. So he never leaves you. He lives perfectly and he takes your place. John says he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The other day I was in my office and I always have coffee in my office. In fact, if you go into my office, you'll probably be asked if you'd like a cup of coffee. But here I was sitting at my desk and, and I, was, I was studying, looking over some things and went to move my hand and my hand hit the coffee cup. And it was a coffee cup that had a lid, but the lid wasn't on tight enough, apparently. And I saw it. It was almost like everything went into slow motion. You know, you've been in those moments where you're like, no. My Bible's sitting right here. You know, there's important things. My computer's here. And I see my hand hit it. And it's like it just slowly topples. And then, boom, erupts coffee everywhere. And so I'm freaking out. I grab my Bible and put it over on the side of the, uh, the desk that has no coffee. And I, and I look, and then it's there that I begin to notice that there was this stack of paper, inconsequential paper, thank you, Lord, inconsequential paper sitting between my Bible and my coffee cup. And the paper used to be white, but now it was brown, soaked up with coffee. The paper had absorbed all of the coffee so that my Bible didn't have a stain on it. It was fine. Friends, this is what Jesus has done for you. 
This is what Jesus has done for you. He has absorbed all of God's wrath for us. He's not talking about a universal or an automatic pardon. He talks about the sins of the whole world. He's talking about a, a pardon that is available for the entire world. If one is to have salvation, if one is to be saved, they must go through Jesus Christ. But Jesus, He is the one that has absorbed all of God's wrath for us. This is what the word propitiation means. Some people think that propitiation is not the right term to use because they think it makes God look like an angry or vengeful kind of person. Like He's some kind of angry beast that is uncontrollable and unpredictable. Or even worse, maybe they they think it makes God look like that angry tribal God who, who must be appeased. And as you walk up to their temples, there's altars. And these altars are covered with, with, with all kinds of things. They're covered with fruit and vegetables and sacrifices. They're covered with chicken parts. And they think that this makes God look like He is angry and, and vengeful. And the people there that, that offer these sacrifices, they, they want to somehow manipulate and control this God so that this God will be good to them and bless them, not curse them. But this isn't the picture that we find in the New Testament, is it? This isn't the picture of Jesus' propitiation. God doesn't think that somehow we can satisfy His wrath. God doesn't think that we can fix the problem. He knows that we can. And His wrath is just. His wrath is perfect and it's good. But this is the beautiful part of the gospel. We can't do anything to fix the problem. So while other people around the world are are worshiping gods who are angry and vengeful and trying to manipulate these gods to do what they want them to do, our God, what does He do? He loves us. And Paul says that the way that He loved us, it's demonstrated by the way that He appeases His own wrath upon sin. He sends His own Son. He sends Jesus Christ, the righteous, to become our sacrifice. And we couldn't, we couldn't fix this in a million years if we tried. But God can, and only He can. And that's why Paul in Romans chapter 3, he says that all of us have sinned. Every single person, all of us have sinned. But everyone who is going to be saved is saved because of what Jesus has done. We are, he says, justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. To be received by faith. And He did this, he says, to show His righteousness so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God appeases His own wrath by sending His Son to die on a cross for our sins and He is the one who stands back and He is the one who is just. He justly pours out wrath on sin. But He is also the one who enables us to have faith in Christ and He is the one who justifies us. So He is the just and the justifier. The one who places their faith in Jesus Christ. So the first way that we can know that we know God is by trusting in Jesus to bear the weight of our sin. But trusting that Jesus can bear the weight of your sin is only the first piece of that evidence. The second is this. Keep Jesus' commands because you're changed. Not so that you can be changed. Let me repeat that. Keep Jesus' commands because 
you're changed. Not so that you can be changed. Look at verse 3. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. So look there at verse 3 again. And by this we know that we have come to know him. It's not as though the keeping of the commandment enabled you now then to know him. You knew him before and as a result you keep the commandment. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep His commandments. When we look at that section, we first of all, we need to know what commandment He's talking about. What is the commandment that John is talking about? Well, down in chapter 2, and verse 10, He reveals that to us a little bit more clearly. He says in verse 10, He says, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So he's writing the Old Commandment. It's interesting. But you've got to think also, the Old Commandment was given 50 years ago in John's mind. This is a commandment that's been throughout the church, something that's very central to who they are. And I think he's looking back, he's referring back to Jesus' words that he records in chapter 13 of his Gospel. Where Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So love ought to be the overwhelming characteristic of the Christian life. This is how people will know that you're a disciple. You love God and you love other people. So what's John saying? Is he saying that if you keep the commandment, you will be saved? Or Is he saying, because you have been saved, you will keep the commandment? The difference here is really important for us. He's saying that the way that you can tell if you know that you know God is by looking at your life. Are you characterized by commandment keeping? Love? Or are you characterized by commandment breaking? Look at verse 4 He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So if you say that you you know God, that you know Jesus, and yet your life is not characterized by love, you don't know Jesus. If you're chronically impatient... Mean-spirited, always wanting what other people have. Jealous, resentful, bitter. If you celebrate evil instead of celebrating truth. The evidence seems to indicate that you're a liar. You don't know God. But look at verse 5. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. So if your life is then characterized by love. Now that's not to say that you're always loving, right? It's not to say that every single day you wake up and like you have the personality of Mary Poppins. That's not what it is. 
It's different. But what he's saying is that your life is, is characterized by patience. It's characterized by kindness. It's characterized as you being more humble, typically. Giving. And after all, we still need the advocate, right? At the beginning of the text, we still need the advocate because we sin, we mess up. But as a general rule, you desire to love other people more than you love yourself. You, you love God and you love the things of God. You trust Jesus alone to bear the weight of your sins. And these are evidences of God working in your life. God is pouring His love through you like water through a pipe. And all you can do is really just reveal Him. That's that intimate knowledge of God. That's that relationship with God. So do you want to know that you know God? Well, do you trust Jesus to bear the weight of your sins? Do you love God? Do you love others because you've been changed? Or are you trying to earn His love by changing yourself? The last piece of evidence that we find here in the text talks about the way of life. The way that we choose to live. Live Jesus' way because He's all that you have. Now, I've always been a huge fan of crooners. I think it's because my parents, they, they always made us watch black and white movies when we were kids. And I love movies with Bing Crosby in it. And I, I later came to realize that that's a, that's a kind of singing style, crooners. And so I, I became a really big fan of Frank Sinatra. Not so much of his lifestyle, but some of his songs. And in one of his songs, well, there, there's few songs that, that reveal what we really think, but actually we would never say it. And he sings a song like that. Frank, he, he used to sing this song called My Way. Maybe you've heard it. And in the song, he says that he lived his life for himself. He lived his life for himself. He chose the paths. He charted the courses, he says. He faced it all. And so as that final curtain comes down, he says this at the end of the song. For what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has nothing. He has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, I did it my way. What does John say about that in verse 6? He says, By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So would you say, would you agree with Frank? Are you living your life my way? Living your life the way that I want to live it. Does your love for God and His people characterize your life? Or do you love the world too much? Do you love the world? Do you love the things of the world? Do you love the things that the world provides you? And sometimes it can be confusing. We want to live for God. We want to live God's way and not our way. But how do we go about doing that? Where do we find a pattern for living God's way for our lives? Now, I'm not creative enough to figure that out. I don't know if you are. 
I'm not creative enough to figure out what it is that God, in His mysterious wisdom, what does He want with the way that we live our lives? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not that creative of a person. I, I'm not ashamed to say that I have a Pinterest account. The reason that Pinterest exists, well, it's a dream come true for people that are very uncreative people. Everybody shares everything on Pinterest. So if you don't know how to build a shelf or you don't know how to tie a necktie, you can go there and they'll teach you. It's brilliant. Friends, I'm not creative enough. I need the pattern. When we look at how we ought to live this life, we need the pattern. And God has given us that pattern in Jesus. That's what John says in verse 6. Walk in the same way in which He walked. So you want to walk in the way that's God's way? Do you want to know that you know God? Does your lifestyle, the way that you live your life, is it patterned after what you want? Or is it patterned after what Christ wants? Does it look more like Jesus or does it look more like you? Are you patterning your life after Frank or are you patterning your life after Jesus? What does the evidence point to? Do you trust in Christ to bear the weight of your sin or are you constantly living as a beaten up Christian? Do you love God and other people because you've been changed or are you trying to change yourself? And whose way are you trying to live? Yours or God's? Do you know that you know God? Look at your life this morning. What does the evidence point to? John says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, that man is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected.